Hi everyone, um, I'm Sarah and I'm going to be reading the Bible for us today and if you don't have a Bible, um, please stick your hand up and Mimi and Lainey will come and give you a Bible and it's on page 535 if you're using a CU1. So that is uh, Jeremiah 15, verse 15 to 21. Lord, you understand. Remember me and care for me. Avenge me on my persecutors. You are long-suffering. Do not take me away. Think of how I suffer reproach for your sake. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me, and you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? You are to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you to rescue and save you, declares the Lord. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and deliver you from the grasp of the cruel. Thanks, Sarah. Um, Keep that uh, vague section open in front of you. We're looking at Jeremiah chapter 11 to 17 today, so a large section. Um, And yeah, if you've got your finger in that sort of area, we'll be able to flip around and, and see what God has to say to us in that. I wanted to begin by asking you, um, what was the most profound rejection you've ever experienced in your life? Starting heavy and starting quickly, um, just thought I'd kind of drop that one on you. Now, as I think about it, I've got quite a few to choose from. I didn't have a very friendly childhood, uh, but the one that I think really hit me was in my final year of school in year 12. Um, The actual rejection came after two more rejections. Let me tell you about those ones first. A girl said no to me. I was devastated. Uh, I, she was a wonderful Christian girl. I thought we could really make it in the world together, and she didn't, so she said no. Uh, that's the first rejection. The second rejection was a couple of weeks later. She started dating the guy who'd bullied me all throughout high school. So, you know, just take that knife in and jam it in and twist it, and that, that's, that's, that was my year 12 year that, thus far. But, but God is a kind God, and so he actually sent me a bunch of friends to look after me, particularly as we headed to our year 12 ball. You know, everyone wants to take that special someone to the ball, and I couldn't because she'd said no. So a bunch of friends said, why don't you just come with us in our group? Where there's seven of us, we need an eighth person to kind of fit in the limo, and then we'll kind of cruise down together. I thought, well, this is fantastic. God has, you know, shown me some great faithfulness and kindness. Always does, but this is not how the story ended. Um, a couple of days in the lead-up to us going to the ball... Um, uh, one of the, the girls who organised it just let me know, oh, by the way, one of our family friends has um, decided to come as well, so you kind of come as a plus one, and, but that's okay, he's just going to come along and sit in the front of the limo and everything's going to be fine, I didn't think much of it. Uh, we got to the day where we all kind of gathered at the, 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 the place, you know, and the, the limo turns up, uh, and we all start to get into the limo, and I thought I'd just do the gentlemanly thing and, and let the, the ladies and everyone else cruise in before me, and then the next thing I know, this other kind of family friend is just kind of partying on and just goes into the limo too. So I can't fit in the car. And so I end up in the front of the limo with some 40-year-old kind of driver guy with a cap thing there in my little suit by myself hearing the party behind me in the limo, listening to my iPod, you know, moody Christian angsty music, trying to, <laughs> trying to hold back the tears. It was a crappy night. Nobody likes rejection. Let me ask you a question, though. That year 12 year that I've just ex- ex- described to you, would you volunteer for that? 
Because here's the thing. If you're a Christian, you already have. Rejection is the occupational hazard of being a Christian. Every time we open our mouths to share the gospel, we run the risk of ending up in that front seat of the limo away from the party, listening to angsty Christian music and holding back the tears. We have the best message in the world. It speaks of a forgiveness beyond anything we could imagine, an acceptance beyond anything we could experience. And yet to speak it to people, to tell them that they can too receive this and enjoy this for an eternity, involves us also confronting those same people with the uncomfortable reality that they are under the condemnation of God. And it's important for us to pay attention to that fact because to preach the gospel, that gospel of salvation, that wonderful message, you must also preach the judgment that forms the context in which it comes. And that's really difficult. And some people have chosen not to do that. So, for example, uh, this, this man is a guy called Robert Shuler, a very significant American Christian leader in the late 1900s. Uh, he's famous for creating what you see there, the Crystal Cathedral, uh, and the great tele-evangelist program called the Hour of Power. Now, and his thinking was to reach the world, you needed to preach the gospel, but only the positive affirmations. If you just said the positive things about the gospel, everything would be all right. But his mistake was that in doing that, he actually emptied the gospel and salvation of all of its value because it was entirely silent on what you're being saved from. And so what he ended up creating was a self-esteem movement. It was all about feeling good about yourself. Sin was about those things that stopped you from feeling good about yourself. And the things that he preached never actually enabled people to change their situation before God. And we don't want to make that mistake. And so if we want to be faithful followers of Jesus, we need to confront the possibility of rejection. I'm sitting in the front of that limo, and this is where Jeremiah helps us. Because in chapters 11 to 17, which is what we're looking at today, uh, we don't have our focus on the word of judgment that is spoken. The focus shifts onto the person who speaks that word. And Jeremiah's experience is almost exclusively one of rejection. And his experience speaks to some of our deepest fears in evangelism. If I do this, if I say this, I might actually end up getting socially ostracized. And Jeremiah, he finds himself isolated, alone, hated and scorned. And here's the problem. He stops speaking the word. So the question for Jeremiah, the question for us today is what gives us the strength to speak the gospel, even with the hard bits, the bits of judgment, when we face that fear and that reality of rejection. But to work that out and to answer that question, we need to first work out where we are in the book. So we're going to go back to our usual you are here section. Uh, Let's think about where we are in terms of history and where we are in terms of the book. You'll see this in your outline. Let's have a think about history. Well, we're in the first 24 chapters of the book, which means we're in the first 23 years of Jeremiah's ministry. Uh, It's a big kind of chunk of time. Beyond that, we can't really tell you because most of the material isn't dated and those that are are out of order. It's all just kind of a a mixed bag. Uh, However, in this particular section, there's one date that looms large. uh, And it happens five years into Jeremiah's ministry uh, in 622 BC. The book of the law is found. Uh, This happens um, in a few places in the Bible. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 22. Uh, And if you remember, Josiah, he's the king at this time. He's introduced a bunch of reforms in the nation. And and part of those reforms involve sending his people to go and renovate the temple. And so while they're out kind of throwing things in the skip bin and that sort of stuff, they find a dusty scroll. And it turns out to be the first five books of the Bible. 
Not the sort of thing that you want to go missing and then kind of forget about, right? And so what it does is it triggers in Josiah a new and more vigorous reformation program for religion. He turfs the idols, he kills their priests, conforms the priesthood of God back to what it was prescribed like in in the book of Leviticus and, and those sorts of places. And Jeremiah himself gets swept up in that program of religious reform. Now, we know that this particular event is on view in these chapters because of the language that starts to bubble to the surface. And so if you want to open your Bibles to the first bit of this section, chapters 11 through to chapter 17, we'll go to chapter 11. Let's have a look at the first five verses. And I want us to observe some of the things uh, that we see there. Cool. So having a look at verse one, um, excuse me, mate, just so you know, phone calls during the talk, probably not the smartest idea. Thank you. You're distracting. That's all. It's all good. Uh, Let's have a look at verse one. Uh, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is chapter 11. Uh, Listen to the terms of this covenant and tell them to the people of Judah and to those who live in Jerusalem. Now, covenant, this is the first time this this word pops up in Jeremiah, and it's going to happen five times in the next 10 verses. So it's pretty significant. Verse three, he says, tell them that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Cursed is the one who does not obey the terms of this covenant. Now, that is a classic Deuteronomy phrase. Uh, Let's keep reading. The terms I commanded your ancestors when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the iron smelting furnace, another phrase from Deuteronomy. Uh, And then he said, I said, I obey me, do everything I command you and you will be my people and I'll be your God. And that's another key phrase, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And then we've got one final one. Then I'll fulfill the oath I swore to your ancestors to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. So again, the the terminology and and the words from the first chunk of the Bible are starting to bubble to the surface in a way that we haven't seen before. Uh, And so even though um, we can't be sure, there are the echoes of those first five books in these chapters. And so even though these chapters are going to be beyond this one particular year, the thing that sits behind it, the shadow that's cast that looms large over all of this section is the finding of the book of the law in 622. And knowing that, I think, helps us understand where we are, not just in history, but where we are in the book. Uh, This is the unfolding structure of Jeremiah. uh, And what we see in in chapter 1 is the word is introduced. See in chapter 2 to 6 that the word is framed in terms of a betrayed husband. And then from chapter 7, the word starts to dismantle uh, the nation. It starts to pick out key institutions and attack those things that the Jewish people, the, the people of Judah, hold dear and systematically takes them all out. Now, last week we saw the temple, and this week, no surprises, God's word turns its attention to the covenant. And so with that in mind, let's have a look at our first heading on our outlines there, the rejection of the covenant. The thing to understand when we get to this section is that it's not God who rejects the covenant that he makes with his people. It's Judah. So again, let's have a look at chapter 11, but this time from verse 9. Then the Lord said to me, there is a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. They have returned to the sins of their ancestors who refused to listen to my words. They have followed their other gods to serve them. Both Israel and Judah have broken the covenant I made with their ancestors. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Now, to understand what's going on here, we need a crash course in contract law. 
Uh, because a covenant is a contract. So law students just kind of back off. I'm probably going to get something wrong here, but that's okay. You guys know better. That's fine, right? Um, but a covenant and a contract, it's a formal agreement between two parties. And how that agreement is worded influences what happens when that agreement is broken. So some fun facts about manufacturing contracts. Um, I was really surprised when I found this out. Um, if you work in the automotive industry and you're a supplier of car parts to the manufacturer who makes the cars, you can be fined for not delivering the right amount of parts to the right place at the right time. So, so you have to pay the company that is paying you for your services. And that, that's not like, you know, oh, I need to write an angry letter to an ombudsman or something here. That, that's not illegal. That's legal. That, that's part of the contract. It's actually written in there as a penalty for not fulfilling your contractual obligations. And the car company wants you to know that you cannot stuff around with them. And the suppliers know that when they sign the contract. They sign on the dotted line, they know that this is the consequence if they don't fulfil their end of the bargain. And God has a similar contract with his people, except he's not making cars, uh, he's making people. uh, And he enters into this contract unconditionally. He he rescues them from Egypt. He does that because he loves them. He's made promises to uh, their forefathers. But the way that that covenant is maintained and kept is through the obedience of his people. Those are the agreed terms. And if they don't obey, there will be penalties. Uh, The word the Bible uses for that is curses, and we see them all the way through chapter 11 to 17. So let me give you a a, a bit of a a brief run here. Um, Let's start in chapter 14. You've got them there up on the screen. At the beginning of chapter 14, we see that God punishes his people with drought. Now, in chapter 14, chapter 15, he threatens death by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. And then ultimately in chapter 15, he threatens exile and captivity. Uh, Their destruction apparently will be so extreme that they will be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, And in chapter 16, he says that those who have died by the sword or famine or disease, they're not going to be mourned or buried. Um, They're going to be left out in the open and become food for birds and wild animals. And then if that wasn't enough, they kind of round off the little survey. He says in chapter 16, verse 13, I will throw you out of this land into a land neither you nor your ancestors have known. And there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. Now, it's it's easy to look at that list up there and kind of conclude like the new atheists do, that that God is just like a sadistic child, right? Chucking a tantrum, just wanting to see people get hurt because he's not getting his own way. But the thing to get about this list is that every single one of those curses there on the screen can be found in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28, which is the section of the book of the law, the page of the contract, that outlines the penalty clauses for breaking the covenant. And so the finding of the book of the law brings into sharp relief for Judah just what it is that's happening to them. All these things aren't just random happenstance, like, oh, we just had a really bad uh, drought this year or whatever. It actually helps them understand that the things that they're experiencing, that they're about to experience, are because they have broken their agreement with God. And now God is applying the agreed-upon punishments. Now, let me ask you a question at that point. How welcoming do you think Judah is going to be to that news? Because I don't think anybody likes receiving bad news. We, we have that phrase, don't shoot the messenger. Uh, and it's kind of just an inbuilt defensive thing. It's like, oh, if I'm going to tell you some bad stuff. It's not my fault. I'm not the news. That That's the news. I'm, I'm kind of detached from it. Because nobody likes being told what they've done is wrong. 
I still remember when I was working as an engineer, I came into the office once and, and one of the ladies there was complaining about how she'd been hard done by by the cops. I was like, oh, what happened? Have, you know, they done something really bad? Oh, I got done for speeding. Oh, were you speeding? Yeah. We don't like it. You know, we call police pigs. It's not because they eat donuts or resemble like that guy off the Simpsons or whatever. It, it, we call them that because they enforce the law. They actually hold people to account for the things that we do in society. Why do we do that? Well, it's because we don't like being told that we're guilty. And Judah, well, Judah is no different. And not surprisingly, they don't just reject the word of judgment that God speaks. They reject the person who speaks it as well. They shoot the messenger. They shoot Jeremiah. And so with that in mind, let's have a look at the rejection of Jeremiah. Because we've already seen in chapter 1 that Jeremiah is tasked with preaching a word of judgment to the nation. And it is very clear from the book up until this point that Judah rejects that word. They do not listen. But what happens in these chapters, in chapters 11 to 17, for the first time in the book, is that that rejection becomes personal. Uh, We're introduced to the perspective of the preacher as he speaks the word of God. And if you could summarise his perspective, his experience in a word, it would be suffering. And we see it, I think, from two different angles in this section. Uh, The first is he suffers as a prophet of God, one who condemns God's people. But he also suffers as one of God's people, upon whom the prophetic word comes and condemns. And understanding both those components of Jeremiah's experience is really significant because it helps us see where this points, which we'll get to a little bit later on in the talk. But first of all, let's have a look at both of those things. Let's have a look at the suffering of Jeremiah as God's prophet. Um, Jeremiah in this section becomes so aligned with the word of God that whatever happens to the word happens to him as well. So, for example, let's have a look at chapter 11, verse 18. Chapter 11, verse 18. This is Jeremiah speaking. Because the Lord revealed their plot to me, I knew it. For at that time, he showed me what they were doing. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. And remember that that metaphor, because we're going to come back to that a little bit later. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. But you, Lord Almighty, who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have committed my cause. So there's a plot. Uh, People are trying to take out Jeremiah. Who are these people? We're told in the next verse, in verse 21, uh, it's the people of Anathoth who are are threatening to kill him. Now, where have we heard that word before? It's a bit of a weird word. Uh, We heard it in chapter 1, verse 1. This is where Jeremiah is from. This is the priestly town of Anathoth, where Jeremiah grew up. He's being betrayed by his own community. And so Jeremiah, rightly, he's filled with anger, not just because he's being betrayed, but because they're betraying the one who stands for God. And so he's angry, angry on God's behalf because uh, they're not just rejecting a man. They're rejecting God's prophet and therefore God. And so he says in chapter 12, verse one, chapter 12, verse one, you are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You have planted them and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Yet you know me, Lord. I'm not like that. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. 
This thing is happening to me as this lamb led to the slaughter, but they're the ones that deserve it. Make it land on them. And so Jeremiah, he feels the anger on behalf of God. He doesn't just feel it, he experiences it. And so concludes that they deserve what they get. Because have a look at verse 5. We'll keep reading through chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 5. God says this really strange thing in response to him. He says, if you've raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? What does that even mean? Well, we find out in the next verse in verse 6. God fills in the information. Your relatives, members of your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. So it's one thing to be rejected by your community, but it's another thing to be betrayed by your own family. The whispers kind of floating around in the next room in the house. Uh, You just assume that they're having a conversation, but no, they're actually planning to kill you. And, And rather than comfort Jeremiah at this point, God turns around and says, that's exactly what's happening to me. Have a look at verse 7. I will forsake my house, abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of her enemies. Why? Because my inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She roars at me, and therefore I hate her. So as God's prophet, Jeremiah's own suffering becomes a window and a mirror into the sufferings of God. He experiences the profoundly personal rejection that God experiences And he's filled with the wounded anger that God feels. But this mirror is double-sided. It's not just that Jeremiah suffers as the prophet of God. He also suffers as the people of God. This brings us to our second subheading. Because he is very much aligned as a prophet. uh, And he's not indifferent, though, to the fate of the nation. He's a part of it. So he inhabits these two spaces. And so even as he feels the anger of God, he's also overwhelmed by the agony of the people. And it's an agony which his people refuse to feel. And we see this, I think, as early as chapter 4 when he cries out, and I've got this on the screen here for you, Oh, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain, oh, the agony of my heart. It's not just kind of poetry, flourishy language, like I writhe in pain. This is what he's feeling on behalf of his people. But he doesn't just cry out, he cries. He says in chapter 9, verse 1, Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Uh, And the weeping continues in today's section as well. In chapter 13, verse 17, he says, But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Uh, And just one more, just in case you haven't gotten the point. Chapter 14, verse 17. Let my eyes overflow with tears night and day without ceasing. For the virgin daughter, my people, has suffered a grievous wound, a crushing blow. This guy knows how to cry, right? Uh, He he also wrote the book of Lamentations, so no surprises. Uh, This guy was a professional crier, and and he's carrying the weight of his nation as he does it. And, And the thing to get about all of this is he's not just feeling the agony of judgment, he's also experiencing it as well. So if you flip over to chapter 16, chapter 16 of Jeremiah, We're not going to read it, but if you kind of skim your eyes down kind of the the first nine verses or so, God gives a whole bunch of things to Jeremiah that he's now not allowed to do. He begins by saying, you're not allowed to get married and have kids. It's just off the table for you. And in that day, that was unthinkable. And the reason that God says that to him is because there's no future for the nation. If there's no food, if there's no money, if there's no health, you don't have kids. And he says to Jeremiah, you're not having kids. But it's more than that. He's not allowed to go to the house of mourning. 
So he can't go to funerals anymore to lament and grieve the dead, whether they're people he know, knows or, or, or doesn't. And the reason that God gives is because there'll be no comfort for the dead in Jerusalem. And if that wasn't bad enough, he's also banned from the house of feasting. So weddings, birthdays, year 12 balls, at least he was spared that particular rejection. Uh, but, but whatever it was, eating, drinking, all of those things were denied him because when God was through with Judah, there would be no rejoicing. There would only be silence. And so Jeremiah experiences in the present what Judah experiences in the future. And so he feels both the anger of God, they deserve what they get, but also the agony of the people, they'll get what they deserve. And because of that, Jeremiah becomes a mirror that reflects both the sufferings of God and the sufferings of the people. And the weight of that breaks him. He reaches a crisis point. As he continues to preach the word, he becomes increasingly rejected by his own people. And he finds himself stuck between an unrelenting God and an unrepentant people. And so he stops speaking. He does more than that. He accuses God of failing to protect him. And you see it in chapter 15, verse 15. This is the Bible reading that Sarah read for us before. 15, 15. He says this. Lord, you understand, remember me and care for me. Avenge me on my persecutors. You are long-suffering, do not take me away. Think of how I suffer reproach for your sake. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy, my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me and you had filled me with indignation. So why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? You, God, are to me like a deceptive brook, a spring that fails. And if you remember in chapter 2, the great crime of Israel was to turn from God, the living spring of water, to cisterns that don't hold water. And what Jeremiah is saying here is, you're a dodgy spring. You aren't the place of living water. You've thrown me under the bus. I put my chops out there on the line for you. I spoke your truth and I got burned for it. You tricked me. And the thing that God wants to make clear to us as we see these words roll out in the next verse is that the one who is at fault here is not God, but Jeremiah. Have a look at verse 19. He says to him that God's protection remains so long as Jeremiah keeps speaking the word. He says, if you repent, I will restore you that you may serve. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Let this person turn to you, but you must not turn to them. I'll make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you to rescue and save you, declares the Lord. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and deliver you from the grasp of the cruel. You see, Jeremiah, he stumbles because he doesn't trust that God is big enough to save him. And I think that we have the same problem, don't we? In fact, our problem is bigger because most of us never get to the point where we're rejected for being Christians and speaking the word. We don't speak the word and then suffer for it and then go silent. We're so scared of the possibility of rejection that we don't even speak it. And I want to kind of push us on this today and just say that's a massive problem, isn't it? Because if faith comes through hearing the word of Christ, how can people hear without someone first preaching to them? So we kind of go outside these walls. There are 25,000 people on campus here at UWA. Multiply that by tons and tons of people that you know in your families, in your neighbourhoods, in your workplaces. 
In the course of your life, you will cross countless people whose only contact with a Christian will be you. And so what hope do any of them have if we're too scared to speak? I'm not saying you have to say it to every single person who comes across your thing. It's like, oh, by the way, it's this, 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 this. But if we are in that kind of space of fearfulness of the possibility of rejection, then they're never going to hear the wonderful message that says you can be saved from the judgment of God. So how do we overcome the fear, the pain of rejection? Well, we look to the one who was rejected for us. It's not Jeremiah. It's the one that he points to, the man, Jesus Christ. Because like Jeremiah, Jesus was a righteous sufferer, the righteous sufferer, the one whom the sufferings of both God and the sufferings of man were reflected in. Because as God's prophet, he proclaimed the word of God and he was rejected for it. As a member of God's people representing humanity, he willingly suffered the consequences of that word in his own body so that we wouldn't have to. But this is where the difference, I think, between Jeremiah and Jesus comes. They're both righteous sufferers, but Jeremiah balks. He's led like a lamb to the slaughter, but then he kind of pulls up and he says, whoa, 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 that's not right. Lead them to the slaughter. Let my persecutors get butchered. But Jesus doesn't do that. He adds to that sense of justice, because that is just, mercy. And instead of demanding the slaughter of sinful sheep, he becomes a sheep himself. And he allows himself to be led to the slaughter knowingly, and to face the ultimate rejection of death at the hands of those sinners who rejected him. And he does it so that those who reject God might become the ones who receive God. And I think you see this uh, in a bunch of places in the Bible, but, but nowhere more clear than Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, Isaiah prophesying about Jesus says that he was repre- oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now we skip down a couple of verses and we see in verse 10 that it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, look at the outcome of this trust in the God who's big enough to save him from rejection. He, Jesus, the lamb, will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Jesus trusted his father to deliver him. Not in the sense of keeping him alive like God had promised Jeremiah. Jesus goes further. He trusts God to deliver him even if he dies for speaking the word. This is beyond the grave. And the father does. He raises him from the dead and he prolongs his days forever. And knowing this completely changes the game for us. Because it doesn't do away with our fear But it now gives us something more powerful to help us face that fear, to help us embrace the possibility of rejection ourselves. And I think it does that in two ways. Because Jesus is rejected, he's vindicated, um, and we're given two things, I think, that help us here. Uh, The first is that it gives us an ironclad confidence that no matter what we face for speaking the word, God is not going to sell us out and throw us under the bus. That was Jeremiah's accusation. It doesn't need to be ours. Have a look at Romans 8 here up on the screen. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and he says this to Christians. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And these are all things that Jeremiah faced, all things that Christians have faced throughout the centuries. And he says, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The force of those words are incredible, aren't they? You can imagine just kind of pacing those to your heart in whatever situation you find yourself in and just the overwhelming positivity that God is for you and will never abandon you. That's the promise. That's the ironclad confidence that we have. And we need it because like Jeremiah, like Jesus, we will be as Christians, those who speak the word of God to people and we will be as sheep who are led to the slaughter. And I'm sorry to say that if you want to wave the flag for Jesus, that is a fact of life. You're just gonna, that's just going to be what you face. You're going to have to get your sheep on. But the thing is, we don't need to doubt like Jeremiah did that God was with us. God will not abandon us when we find ourselves in the place of rejection. He will remain faithful to us to the end and beyond. Because that's what he did with Jesus. But here's the thing, and this is the second thing. As we witness to the judgment of God and the salvation that rescues us from that judgment... We can actually expect it to bear fruit. And this is the key difference between Jeremiah's situation and ours. Jeremiah's commission, super clear. Jeremiah, you're going to preach judgment and you're you're just going to keep preaching judgment and not a single person is going to listen to you. God says to him, you will have 100% rejection, but I want you to do it anyway. But that's not the expectation this side of Jesus. We will experience rejection, but we will also experience surprising reception. So my question for us as we close is this. Will you trust God and risk rejection for the sake of those who sit under the judgment of God? Do you feel the anger of God, the agony of the people? Do you add to that the compassion of Christ? Will you risk the front seat of the limo for the sake of those in the back? One of the things that I've kind of started doing in the last couple of years when we're at the ref and there's a kind of a lull moment and and people stop talking or people just ignore me, um, I look around at the people in in the ref. Look at the guy eating the noodles, the girls hanging out with their friends, um, the the people who've just kind of come in through the doors. And I actually actively call to mind... This happened by accident, by the way. I'm not trying to throw out godliness kind of vibes here. Um, But I'm actively calling to mind the fact that that person is a real person made in the image of God and who stands under the condemnation of God unless somebody tells them the truth of Jesus. That weighs on you. I still remember being in college once and somebody put up their hand and they asked, does anyone ever get survivor guilt? Like I'm the only one in this room who actually survived the disaster. Like it moves you. Like what do you do? Do you stand up on the table in the ref and just start saying, guys, this is actually serious. There's something that's really massive and big here that you need to know about. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I don't think we need to go put the placards in and kind of march around and just say the judgment of God is coming or or whatever. But, But do you see the issue, right? Once we actually grapple with the truth of what's going on here in the world and we see both the anger of God and are offended on his behalf and the agony of the prospect of judgment, it needs to move us in compassion to risk rejection for the sake of those who may never hear the word. We do so many training courses and all sorts of really exciting things at the CU to help you do that. But at the end of the day, you don't need training. What you need is the courage that the gospel gives you to step into a place where you might receive rejection because you love the person in front of you. You're driven by the anger of God, the agony of what they might face, the love of Christ. 
The way Christianity has consistently overturned the world is not through clever strategies or winsome presentations or training courses. It's because individual believers like you have stepped out in faith despite their fear because they loved God and they loved the people around them. And they held their lives cheaply because they'd found something of far greater worth that they wanted other people to have too. So my challenge to you is this. Will you get your sheep on? Will you hop into the front of the limo for the sake of those around you?